Okay, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue the series we started last week on Nazarite consecration. We said uh, last week, I would encourage you if you didn't get that message or you weren't here, that you can listen to it online. We preached a whole message about what it means to be a Nazarite, biblically what that's about, and we talked about how we felt like the Lord is calling us to a season of consecration in the house of prayer for the year 2012. And so uh, I'll give a little bit of a recap and then uh, work through some other thoughts tonight. Uh, we, we went through number six last week, which number six gives us the details in the scripture of what it means, uh, what this Nazarite vow was all about. It was something given to the Israelites. For those that weren't a part of the priesthood, any man or woman who desired to make a vow of separation to the Lord, to be uh, totally sold out and, and focused to the Lord for a season, they could take a Nazarite vow. That just means set apart, a, 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 a a vow of set-apartedness, consecration. And they could, uh, they could take a season where they were completely, uh, as the scripture says, they were wholly under the Lord in that season. The interesting thing about the Nazarite was, whereas the, the, the lineage of the priest, it was uh, something that came through the line of Levi, and the priests, they got their consecration by their heritage. Well, the Nazarite... They would, get, they would come by their consecration because of desire. In number six, it says, if a man or woman desires to make a, a vow of separation to the Lord, they can make a, vas, a Nazarite vow. And so this thing was out of desire and longing, the, the reach of the heart to be set apart, not, not out of compulsion, not out of uh, uh, legislation, but out of longing. And so... Uh, we went through it last week, and, and we talked about the different conditions that a Nazarite had to engage with. Uh, There's basically three things. The first one was they couldn't touch any, anything that came from the grapevine, juice, wine, grapes, uh, any vinegar made from grape juice, raisins, none of that. They had to say no to anything that came from the grapevine. They couldn't touch uh, dead bodies. They couldn't even go to a funeral of a loved one. If they did, they'd have to start their their vow all over again. And uh, even if somebody uh, inadvertently died next to them, they actually had to start their vow all over again to, to continue to walk out that season of consecration. And then the third thing was they would grow their hair out. And all three of these uh, have symbolism for us today. The, the thing where, you know, they say no to the grapes and the, the raisins and the wine, that would be indicative of uh, a person today who would say no to uh, pleasures, worldly pleasures, and, and things that will even deaden you and dull you, like wine would deaden and dull the senses, things that would deaden and dull your heart. And then secondly, the, the no dead bodies, um, that would be uh, you know, a picture of not touching anything that's lifeless, that doesn't have life in it. Certainly not touching sin that causes death, but, but even further, not touching things that, that don't have life in them. And then the hair piece... Uh, not a hair piece, but the piece about hair. Uh, that would be about the ownership of God, that being set apart to God and being wholly His. The interesting thing about the, uh, the Nazarite vow from number six is at the end of it, they had to offer a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a fellowship offering. Uh, and they had to offer those in, uh, you know, before the Lord with the priests officiating and and it was a great message to them and to others that that time of separation wasn't something where they bought the forgiveness of their own sins. But it was that they had to actually go through the same method of atonement and forgiveness that everybody else had to. In other words, the vow of consecration, it didn't make them saved or, or get their sins forgiven. It was just a matter of the heart that out of desire wanted to be set apart unto God. Many uh, authors and commentators, they look at the Nazarite uh, vow from number six and they say it's a picture 
of simply New Testament Christianity. We're in Christ. We are set apart wholly to the Lord. We're bought. We're owned by the Lord. I love how Paul says it. First Corinthians, he says it twice. He goes, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. Man, that revelation, just that revelation, will change the way that you think and, and live and act. I am not my own. I am his. He bought me. I think oftentimes people, they, they live their Christianity and, and they kind of think that, they think of it this way. They go, he is mine first. And then they go, and I am his. And I think really the way the Lord thinks about it is, I am his and he is mine. He owns me. He's bought me with his blood. And that's how it is in Christ. And so the picture would be the New Testament uh, believer is owned by the Lord. They, and then what they do in the grace of God is they say no to temporal pleasures and worldly lusts and things that are passing away. They push off on those things so that they can go wholeheartedly in abandonment after the Lord. And whether it's things that don't have life in them or, or it's things that dull them, uh, the idea is that uh, they push off on maybe even legitimate things. They push back on those so that they can seek the Lord with wholeheartedness. The beauty of a Nazarite, in the sense of the, the number six version, is that heart of love and desire. That, that heart of longing that says, I want to be set apart unto God. I love that. And that is the picture of New Testament believers because it's really voluntary lovers, those that will willingly offer themselves to God in radical abandonment. That's, that's called Christianity. Now, whenever you talk about consecration or being set apart, there's always the opportunity that a religious spirit can creep in or people can get into, you know, kind of a one-upsmanship and, and think of themselves as better than another. And uh, here's what I want to say about that. That any consecration, any season of, of separation or sanctification that's not motivated by love. In other words, desire and longing for God. Love. If it's not motivated by love, it will lead into religious self-righteousness. And that, beloved, is going to have an end in it that's rotten. We don't want that. We want a set-apart heart because of desire and longing for the Lord. The beauty of a heart that says, I want to be wholly His. We want to love Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And so those are kind of the thoughts we went over last week and, and then invited everybody to, for 2012 to, to jump in on some sort of season of set-apartedness. Anybody that's part of this community or even anybody that's listening on the internet, I really feel like it's a word that the Lord is releasing right now to be set apart, holy the Lord's, out of love, not out of a spiritual badge of some sort. And so we just encourage our whole community to, to ask the Lord, pray with your families and ask the Lord what it is that you might be able to offer to the Lord uh, and and. and you know, sort of do without for a year, even a year. You know, and I, I encourage people to go maybe even three months at a time because a year can be long. You know, go, ooh, 12 months. So you go maybe three months with this and then three months with that and then three months with this. And, and, but, but figure out between you and your family and the Lord how you can engage. We really feel like 2012 is a year of Nazarite consecration. So I want to make this distinction. When we say Nazarite, what, we're, what, I'm, what I'm really saying is, uh, when we say Nazarite, I'm not believing that anybody actually becomes a Numbers 6 Nazarite. You can't because there is no temple and because most of you are not Jewish. And so you can't because you couldn't finish the vow. In fact, in the, in the scripture, you'll find in, in Acts 21, there were... Uh, at least four men that Paul interfaced with that were in the middle of a Nazarite vow and they couldn't finish the vow because they couldn't pay for the offerings they had to give at the end. And Paul actually covered their expenses. And so there's no way to actually do a Nazarite vow in, this, in the numbers six sense of it 
But what we do is we look at that example. We look at the Apostle Paul who did a Nazarite vow. And we, we look at what that encourages our hearts. And it's in the spirit of a Nazarite. Just like we would say a forerunner. Now, I don't believe anybody is John the Baptist in here. But we're in the, the forerunner spirit preparing the way of the Lord. And so it's important that I distinguish that because the next thing you know, you know, we're saying Nazarites. And then the next thing you know, we'll have a bunch of people out in the, the desert somewhere doing the John the Baptist locusts and honey. And I'm trying to get us in the spirit of the deal and not in the whatever desert of the deal. Amen. So it's the spirit of it. And, and so we're encouraged, though, by it. We look at the Nazarite example. We look at the New Testament example. We identify with it. We embrace that lifestyle. And in Christ, in the New Testament, we say, yes, Lord, I am yours. I am yours. I've been bought. I am yours. Sanctified, set apart by the blood of Jesus. And so, uh, as I said, many commentators just see Christianity, New Testament Christianity, as a picture of Nazarite set-apartedness, Nazarite consecration. F.B. Meyer He's got a great book. Well, he's got several great books, but he's got a great book on John the Baptist. He said this. He said, on each of us, talking about New Testament believers, on each of us rests the vow of separation by right of our union with the Son of God, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And so when we see that Old Testament example, we see the New Testament example, we're compelled. We go, man. I want, I want to love him with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength. We look at how David lived. He said, I don't want to give the Lord anything that doesn't cost me something. And we go, yes, I love you, Jesus. How can I sacrifice to you? How can I lay my life down in abandonment to you? And so that's, that's the heart we're going for, that heart of love that says, I want to be radical in abandonment. Now, I want to move into tonight, and I want to talk about the subject of actually grace. Because we wouldn't do a season of consecration uh, apart from the grace of God. We couldn't. It's the grace of God that would actually uh, compel and enable our hearts to to go for a season of set-apartedness. But I want to actually preach a message on grace that compels us to sacrifice. Grace that compels us to sacrifice. And uh, there's a few kind of, you know, things that are popular and they kind of come and go in the body of Christ where uh, ideas about grace um, kind of, they confuse the issue of what grace is there for. And then the ideas of like sacrifice where some would even think that sacrifice is a bad word. That if you would say, hey, we were, we're calling people to sacrifice this or that, they'd say, well, brother, you're just striving or you're in the flesh. Well, I want to address those issues because as we're calling people to consecration, I want to call them to it in the grace of God, but I want to call them to radical abandonment. In other words, sacrifice in the grace of God. Does that make sense? All right. So uh, we're in Ephesians 2. Now, here's what I want to deal with. There are a couple misunderstandings of grace. I want to touch on those, and then I want to kind of give an alternative to it. Um, I would say this, that any view or teaching on grace that uh, causes the heart to be complacent, any view or teaching on grace that causes the heart to be complacent It's an incomplete view of grace. Grace, it it shouldn't cause us to be complacent. It should compel us like love compels us. The message of grace is so stunning, it should compel our hearts into action rather than sort of get us to kick back and just think, well, it's all done anyway. I don't have to do anything. And so one of the kind of popular versions of grace, it kind of goes this way. It's kind of like this. Grace has accomplished and will accomplish everything. You can't add anything to the grace of God. And therefore, don't try. Since God finished the works from the foundation of the world, we don't need to strive. We don't want to get into works. We just receive by faith. And, and so, while that all sounds good, 
Here's kind of where that heads to. The bottom line ends up being something like this, that if it involves work or human effort at all, that can't be grace. Well, I would say that's not true. That's not a a true portrayal of grace. Now, I do agree that you cannot add anything to the cross of Christ. You can't add anything to it. Jesus, blood, pays for sin, justifies the sinner, atones for sin even more than the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Jesus' blood completely sets us free from all the effects and stains of sin, and there's nothing you and I can do to set ourselves free from it or earn it in any way that is grace. Amen. Now, here's the thing about that. That very grace also provides for us a life pathway of works that we get to walk in. And so while I don't believe that you can add anything to grace in terms of salvation, there's not one thing I can do to make him love me more. There's not one thing I can do to save myself. That it is also grace, though, that enables me to do works. Now, in Ephesians 2, it's a great chapter on grace. Let's look at it. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I say amen. Man, I've been saved by grace, not of my own works. There's no, I cannot boast except for in the cross of Christ. I look at my life, I hated God, I was completely rebellious, and man, the message of the cross and God's love for me pierced my heart, and I went, man, he's good and he he loves me. And it's grace, by grace I've been saved. I didn't do anything to save myself, His works, he finished them at the cross. Now look at this. Look at what grace also does. Verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so grace, it makes the way, there's nothing we can add to grace, and Grace invites us into works. I love that. We don't have to camp on one side and go, it's all grace, brother. You don't have to do any works. And you don't have to camp on the other side and go, you better work, brother. You know why? Because grace, faith, and works are all in unison in the kingdom of God. By grace, you have been saved. Through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And in Christ Jesus, you're created for good works that you should walk in them. I love that. I love that. Because here's how, here's how we tend to do. We kind of compartmentalize things. We go, well, it's got to be grace. And the other guy goes, well, it's got to be works. And people will do this with, with Paul and with James. And they'll say, see, those guys had an argument. And James was writing his stuff to try to counteract Paul's stuff. That's not it at all. What you have is in Paul, in his epistles, and in James, they're writing the full idea, the broad idea of grace, faith, and works. And what Paul said is this. He goes, look, I don't have to work for salvation. I only have to believe. I have faith, faith in the grace of God. And what James said is, that's right. I have faith in the grace of God too. And if I have faith in the grace of God, you know how it'll be shown? By works. They're not contradictory. They're in unity. They're in unison. And here's how it works in the kingdom. Whenever you see somebody pitting one kingdom truth against another, and I see it all the time, people will do it with prayer and evangelism. All the prayer people, they don't want to evangelize. All the evangelism people, they don't want to pray. I go, you know, I actually think that the guy that's over the prayer ministry of heaven, Jesus, is also over the evangelism ministry of heaven, Jesus. Because the guy that did the Great Commission, 
Jesus is the guy that ever lives to make intercession. Jesus. They're in unison. Grace, faith, and works are in unison in the kingdom. And so, while some would say, brother, you know, all that talk of sacrifice, that's, that's not grace. You know, all that talk of, of you know, uh, doing works for God, that, that's not grace. I would counter and say, well, no, grace actually enables us to sacrifice. Grace actually enables us to works. Think about those words there. He says, in Christ Jesus, there are good works. Let me, let me read it exactly how it's written. He says, we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I thought about that a lot. And I think I, I look at my life and I go, you know what? There is no way I would be doing what I'm doing if it were not for grace. There is no chance. I, I, I mean, I, there's just not a chance. And the only thing that I can chalk it up to is there, there are good works that were created uh, by God for me to walk in. Now, if somebody said, so you mean God just made you do all of it? I'd go, well, no. God invited me in grace and I actually had to offer what I can offer, a yes. I actually had to say yes. I had to walk in them. That's what he said. You're cre- there's good works created beforehand that you should walk in the works. That is critical. There, are, there is a part that God plays and a part that we play. God will not do our part and we cannot do his part. You understand that? And so it's grace that God would give us the opportunities and the invitations and we say yes and then, you know what, we do them and you guess, guess what, how we do them by? By grace. <laughs> Saved by grace, we live by grace, we offer what we can offer which is a yes and then here's how God sums it up and pays us back. We live by grace, we're saved by grace, we walk in the good works that God's prepared for us to walk in, we walk a life out in those good works, and when we get there, Ephesians 1 says, we'll say this, it's all been to the praise of the glory of your grace. And God is going to turn around, and this is this how he does, he's going to turn around and goes, I, you did a really good job, I'm going to reward you. And we're going to go, um... Yeah, I would never have made this without grace. He goes, you did so good. And we go, no, no, no. It's your grace that made a way. He goes, and you're so sweet. You did so good. Here, have a mansion. (laughs) And we look at the mansion, and we go, you're giving me that. He goes, it's a reward. And and we go, "But, but I would never have gotten here without grace. He goes, I know. And we go, but I didn't do anything. He goes, yes, you did. We go, what did I do? He goes, you said yes. I'm getting a free mansion. Oh, wait, a heavenly free mansion? He goes, oh, it's not free. He goes, you worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then Paul would go, but it's God who's at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know the verse of Philippians, he goes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So you go, well, is it you or is it grace? God goes, yep. (laughs) And so here's our thing. We don't have to go, brother, it's all grace. If you lift a finger, it's not God. That's not works, brother. Now, Paul would say, no, the reason why I can lift a finger is because of grace. Grace, yes, I'm saved by grace. I can't add a thing to it. And I live by grace. I'm invited by grace to walk in works that God prepared for me. And I walk that out by grace. (laughs) So we don't have to pit one against another. We just get to live in the divine tension of it. We go, that's absolutely right. And the Lord is so kind. Well, it's just how he does giving. He owns everything. He gives us some. We give some back to him, and he counts it as if we gave him something. 
Did you follow that? He owns everything. He gives us some. We give some back. He goes, you gave me. You gave to me. We go, but you gave it all to me. He goes, you give. You're such a giver. We go, but you gave it to me. He goes, but you gave it back. That's how he does the math on it. He enables us and empowers us by his grace. We say yes. And we walk those works out by grace. It's powerful. So without grace, we can't do anything. Uh, And it's God's grace that prepares a life path for us, a life path of good works. And by his grace, we agree with his plan and we actually do the works. At times, we have to make every effort to enter into grace. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He goes, make every effort to enter into the rest of God. To enter into the ease of grace is the idea. Make every effort. King James Version says it this way. He goes, uh, labor to enter into rest. <laughs> like let that tweet go, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work To enter into grace. He goes, yeah, do that. There's a divine tension of these truths that we we say yes to the grace of God and it enables us and compels us to actually walk some things out, to actually do works. Now, the second thing that that kind of I I think we kind of mistake about grace is we tend to think, and I, I could say people tend to say it this way, they teach grace in this manner, that grace is like a free pass. For sin. So the first thing I'm kind of nailing is the idea that grace, if it's by grace, there's no works involved. I would say no, actually grace enables us to work. And I'll, and I'll give another verse or two on that in a minute. But the second thing would be that people think about grace as a free pass for sin. You know, they would say if you're in sin, you don't, you don't have to worry about it. There's grace. And, and the thing about that is, yes, grace is what enables God's forgiveness to be apportioned to us, for us to be cleansed and set free. But guess what? Forgiveness is for the repentant. (laughs) The offer of forgiveness is for everyone, and those that engage with it, they engage with it by repentance. Oftentimes, this message of grace, it's just kind of like, to the sinner, we just go, oh, there's grace, brother, don't worry. And there's no uh, compelling urgency to tell the guy to repent. The book of Proverbs says, he who confesses and forsakes his sin will receive mercy. That's important that we understand that grace isn't about just getting a free pass. Grace, it overcomes sin. Grace, it it makes a way for forgiveness. It's for the repentant. But when people think of grace as a free pass, they just kind of think that God winks at sin and then they just kind of live their life thinking, now where's the line and how close, like what can I get away with and still sort of be in grace? Beloved, that's not the way to think at all. In fact, that's not the way Paul taught it at all. Paul taught it this way in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He said this, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace, rather than being sort of the hall pass just to go sin all you want, grace is actually the instruction to the heart to live soberly and to deny ungodliness. In other words, the point isn't how close to the line can I get. The point is, have you seen the cross lately? Have you seen God in the flesh, bleeding and dying on the cross. That's called grace. And that grace that God would shed his blood for my salvation, for my uh, sanctification, that grace is urging my heart to get as far away from the line of sin because it's that sin that put him on the cross. The grace of God is instructing me to deny all ungodliness. That's the, the mechanism of grace. The enabling power of God that enables us to live denying ungodliness, soberly, going after righteousness. Some use grace as the sort of, you know, get out of jail free card. 
You know, it's just grace, you know. I mean, I know I made a mistake, but, you know, there's grace. I want to use grace as the enabler of my heart to get me as far away from sin as possible. I want to say yes to every invitation in the grace of God that draws me away from unrighteousness and ungodliness. It's the grace of God that compels us to live righteously in this age. Amen. And so when we have a a proper understanding of grace, and we understand that grace is not opposed to works, and that grace enables us to overcome sin, then we can look at this idea of grace that enables us to offer the Lord's sacrifice and allow that to move our heart into position to, to get into consecration. And so look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I, I want to live my life in a way where I, I lean into grace that enables me to do things I never dreamed of. I never dreamed of. You ever said yes to the Lord? The Lord invited you to do something. You said yes to it, and you realized once you got into it, it was way, way beyond you. You started doing it, you're like, whoa, I am out of my league. Beloved, welcome to IHOP. I've been living here for a while. I'm like, this is so fun. You don't do 24-7 anything that's not, I mean, 24-7 ministry, 24-7 worship and prayer ministry? Oh, really? Just going to do that? Not without God. Not without God making that happen. I've been playing over my head for some years now. And, and you know, at first it's absolutely scary. Because you're like, you, you realize, you go, whoa, there is no way this is going to happen. There's no way I can do this. And I think a lot of times what happens is we approach things that are way over our head and we go, oh yeah, I was just, I was, there's just no way. There's just no way. I just can't. And what we do is we actually pull the ripcord. We look for the exit door. We go, oh, there's grace. I messed up. There's grace. Let me get out. And God goes, actually, there's grace for you to get in. There's actually grace for you to go for it. Look for the entry door. In Romans 5, he says, you can access grace by faith. You can go for it by faith and access grace that will enable you to go for it even more. I want to live like that. I, I want to live the crazy grace. I don't want to live greasy grace, easy grace. Whatever. I want to live crazy grace that by the end of it, I look back and I go, that's impossible. There's no way, no chance I would have ever, could have ever, impossible. And I'll go, oh, it's to the praise of the glory of your grace, oh God. And he'll go, you did a great job. And I'll go, no, no, that was your grace. He goes, well done. I go, no, your grace. He goes, here's a mansion. I go, oh, are you kidding? He goes, nope. Enter into the joy. I want to find the channel of grace Go for it and allow it to carry me into stuff that I never dreamed possible. I don't want to use grace as the excuse or as the exit. I want grace to be the entry. I want grace to be the compelling thing. I want, I want grace to be the thing that, that, you know, catapults me. Look at Paul. This is what Paul, this is exactly what Paul is talking about, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 9. He goes up, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He goes, I am the least. He goes, I don't even deserve the title. I was killing Christians. This is impossible that I would be an apostle, messenger sent with apostolic power and authority in the earth. We look at Paul, we go, he kind of wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He's kind of like got a really good anointing. He goes, impossible. I am the least. I am not worthy to be called such a thing. I killed Christians. He goes, this is nuts. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me, ooh, look at that phrase, was not in vain. See, there's grace offered. He talks about in the New Testament how people receive the grace of God in vain. There's a divine enablement offered to people, and at times they'll shun it. 
At times they'll shut it out. They won't, they won't say yes to God's invitations and grace. But he goes, look, there's no way I should be here. There's no way I should be doing what I've done. There's no chance. I'm the least likely guy on the planet. In fact, in another place he says, I am the worst sinner there is. And it's biblical scriptural truth, so it's got to be real. He goes, but so that we could see how powerful the grace of God is, God used me to enable other hearts to, to have courage is the idea. He goes, so I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Now look at this one. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul goes, here's how it worked. By grace, I've been saved. By grace, I'm called to be an apostle. And by grace, I labored more than all the other apostles. Grace that enabled him to work hard. Now, come on. Somebody goes, well, man, brother, it's kind of hard now. It It feels like God's grace is lifted. I go, tell that to Paul. Shipwrecked, night and a day in the deep. You ever even been at the ocean when it's dark? He's floating around the ocean, floating in the ocean at night. Sleeplessness often, hungry often, stripes on his back multiple times, imprisonments often. We, we go, man, it's getting a little hard, man. It's, you know, like a little difficult. We go, oh, man, the grace is gone. Come on. Come on. I feel like the Lord's calling me to fast. Lord, I need grace. By lunch, we're like, man, I'm so hungry. This fast is so hard. I don't feel any grace. (laughs) It was grace that gave you the idea to begin with. Now lean into grace and labor a little bit. Because he said, I worked hard by grace. I labored more abundantly than you all did, than all the apostles did. He goes, yet not I, but the grace of God working in me, enabling me, divinely enabling me to labor. See, beloved, grace is not against works. Now, as it relates to getting saved, you can't work for it. So in that sense, it is. But when we live in Christ, we live by grace. And that grace that we live by enables us to work. It enables us to give to serve, to bless, to labor more abundantly. Grace enables us, it divinely empowers us to labor, to do the works. And so grace, I would say this, just as grace enabled Paul to labor, grace is also what enables us to offer sacrifice to the Lord. Grace is what enables us to say yes to consecration sanctification or set-apartedness. It's grace. It's by grace, beloved. It's not by striving or any human works. It's by grace. Now, immediately when we use this word sacrifice, there's some verses that might come to mind. And and I want to take you to a couple of them. Because if we think that uh, God doesn't like sacrifice in any way, then we'll just immediately shut off and we'll go, I don't care what you're saying about grace and grace enabling you. God doesn't do sacrifice. And we go, ugh. So I'm not going to, you know, we would think, well, I'm not going to do that because God doesn't do sacrifice. But let's look at the scripture. Let's look at the New Testament. Let's see what God says about sacrifice. And uh, let's get a a biblical picture of this. So uh, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to bring this to a close here in a moment. Matthew 9, verse 13, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. This is a little bit of a slap to them because he tells the Pharisees to go and learn. These, these are the most you know, scholarly guys around who spent their whole life learning. Go and learn what this means. He's going to quote Hosea 6, verse 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we might look at that and say, see, see, 
The Lord wants mercy and not sacrifice. He doesn't want sacrifice. There's a verse in the New Testament. Well, when you get that in context, here's what you understand. The word translated mercy in the Hebrew, which was originally from the, the book of Hosea, so it's the uh, Hosea version, is a, it's a Hebrew word, chesed, chesed. And that word means loyal, faithful love. And the Lord says, I'm not into your empty burnt offerings and your empty sacrifices. I want chesed, loyal love. I want the heart of love that's faithfully abandoned to me. I don't, I don't want sacrifice. I want chesed. I don't want your empty burnt offerings. I want chesed. I want your loyal love, the heart that comes after me and desires me. That's what I want. The heart that loves me and is obedient to me. That's what I want. And so, there we see that he's not saying that he's not after anything that we would offer him or, or sacrifice to him, but he's, he's after a heart that's burning in desire and delight for the Lord, burning in abandonment and love for the Lord. He doesn't want empty animal sacrifices with a heart that's disconnected. He wants a heart of loyal love. I desire chesed. I desire your loyal heart of love. Well, let me give you another one. Hebrews 10, verse 5. This might be another one that you might read and you go, see, the Lord, he doesn't like sacrifices. Well, let's look at it. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, When he came into the world, that's Jesus. When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And so he goes, See, 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 God doesn't do sacrifice. He doesn't like them. He's quoting Psalm 40 there. And when you read the context, when you read the context of Psalm 40 and the context of Hebrews 10, here's what you find out. That the Lord doesn't want burnt offerings and sacrifices because he wants Jesus to be the sacrifice. He wants the blood of Jesus to once and for all pay for the sin of all mankind. He wants to swing the door open to all humanity and not just have the mosaic system of sacrifices that was only for those that were worshiping in Israel. He goes, a body you've prepared for me what, what, what does that have to do with the Lord not wanting the burnt offerings and sacrifices? Because he said, my body is going to be the sacrifice. So in context, once again, he's not saying he hates sacrifice. He's actually saying he just didn't want those burnt offerings. He wanted the sacrifice of his own son, that, that blood that would pave the way for all humankind to come to him and worship and in love. Now, let's see what the Lord says in the New Testament about sacrifices. Same book, Hebrews chapter 13. Just a few pages over. Just wrapping this up with a little bit of Bible study. But this is powerful, beloved. Therefore, verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, that's by Jesus. You could say it by, therefore, by grace. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So there's a sacrifice that we're encouraged to offer. Worship and praise, actually singing out of our mouths. Actually thanking him. He says, it's a, he goes, I'll count it as a sacrifice, even when you don't feel like it. And the, the sacrifice of praise, when you actually studied it out, study it out, you'll find that the sacrifice of praise, it wasn't, oh, I don't feel like it, so I'm just going to do it anyway. The sacrifice of praise was actually, I love you, Lord, so I want to give you a little more. I love you, Lord, so I want to worship you a little more. I want to give you a sacrifice of praise, an offering of praise. Now look what he says, verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. 
with doing good and sharing. He goes, with these kind of sacrifices, the Lord loves. In fact, that, the idea on verse 16 is there's all sorts of sacrifices the Lord loves. Here's a couple examples of the kind that he loves. Doing good to others and sharing what you have, giving it away. He goes, with such sacrifices, with sacrifices like this, it brings pleasure to the Lord. Beloved, here's the deal. The grace of God, we're saved by grace, but the grace of God enables our heart and invites our heart to offer things willingly to God that actually release pleasure in the heart of God. Just like in the Old Testament, when they would do the sacrifice, it was a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, guess what? We get to be the sacrifice, and it's a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. You and I give the Lord pleasure when we, in grace, offer sacrifices to him. I'm going to land here, Romans 12, last verse. He goes, I want mercy, I want chesed, I want loyal love, hearts of abandonment. That's what I want. I'm not looking for burnt offerings. I want hearts of radical abandonment. Now look at Romans 12. Paul, once again, verse 1. You know it. You know the verse. I love this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you could say by the grace of God, that you present your bodies A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Beloved, grace enables us to offer ourselves radically to God. Jesus sacrificed not to alleviate us from ever offering a sacrifice... Jesus sacrificed himself and made a way by grace so that grace would be available to us so that we could also sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, the whole of our life is to be to to live as a sacrifice, continually offering worship, praise, service, blessing, giving, whatever we can come up with. Not to earn his favor, not to earn the forgiveness of sin, not to earn salvation. That's not what it's for. What's it for? To love him. To bless him. With such sacrifices, he's well pleased. Do you know how powerful a thing it is to think that you and I could do anything that would release pleasure in God? That we could lift up any, any little finger and it makes his heart warm. It pleases him. Listen, we don't say yes to consecration to earn a religious badge, to earn something from God, to look better than the next guy, to atone for our sins. No, we say yes to consecration in the grace of God to release pleasure in the heart of God. I am so excited for 2012. Oh my gosh. Because there is going to be a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance ascending out of this community of hearts laid down in love. Look, I don't even care what you're offering to the Lord. I don't want to know. Because you and him know. That's all that matters. We offer to him the sacrifice of praise, that extra love, because we love him. It's not against grace, it's by grace. Oh, beloved. One life to live, one life to give, one life to sacrifice for the glory and the beauty of his name. You know what? When we turn the corner into eternity, when our corruptible puts on incorruptible, you know what? When glory fills every pore, 
we won't be able to sacrifice anymore. We have one opportunity to offer sacrifices. Don't talk yourself out of it. Let grace enable you into it. Oh, come on. (laughs) Amen. Let's stand. This is it. I know it's a little late, but man, this is it. Oh, I want to live a life poured out, laid down. The beauty of sacrifice to the name of Jesus. We live by grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. And we offer him sacrifices by grace. Oh, I love what David said. Because I don't want to give him anything that's not going to cost me something. That wasn't out of religious works or duty. Or striving. It was out of love, beloved. It was out of love. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm asking for that. That inner sense of the grace of God. That compelling sense of God's grace. That we would live as sacrifices unto your name. That the idea of being a Nazarite. It would be so compelling. Ones that desire to be close to the flame. Ones that desire to be set apart unto God. Not because we're going to earn anything. But because we love. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service of worship. It's worship. It's worship. It's love. Sacrifice is love. Come, Holy Spirit. 